Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into other podcasts, true crime, pop culture. And this week, was it murder or suicide? Was he a whistleblower or a crime victim? We'll talk about season three of Accused. Then, hold on to your panties. We'll look at the highly watched and hard to watch Don't Fuck With Cats from Netflix. Excuse my language. I don't typically like to curse in the first like minute of the podcast, but it's literally called don't fuck with cats. Joining me to get that done and more is my real life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and my favorite fellow internet detective, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Don't fuck with Kevin. <laughs> also with us is journalist, Nobody true crime says author. That. Nobody does that. Sorry, Kevin. We fuck with you all the time. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, and plow driver, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, yes. I had a big plowing episode this afternoon. You can see a video of it uh, over in our Crime Murders on Discussion group, and I and I lived, and now I'm back inside. Yeah, I gotta say, your tractor is pretty beefy. It's like a real like farm tractor you got over there. Oh, it is. It's it's a real tractor. Um, we have like a little competition in my neighborhood of, you know, my neighbor Dan has a tractor, but his has an enclosed cab, which mine does not. He's like, you need to get a better tractor. I'm like, come plow my driveway, Dan. <laughs> like, you know, I don't have like a hit podcast. I just have a quasi hit podcast. Right. Dan. Yeah, I, I don't get a cab. I put on my Elmer Fudd hat and I go out. <laughs> what do you think we are? Up and vanished? No, we can't afford tractors <laughs> with cabs. <laughs> no, you to brave the elements. It's invigorating. Finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. 2020 is off to a great start. It really is. I was, for one, was very happy to put 2019 in my feelings box and shove it under the bed, never to be talked of again. You sound like an Irishman. <laughs> no, 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 that's the Irish half of you talking about wow. storing your feelings away. <laughs> it's the Irish feelings box. Yeah. Open it up. The Italian feelings box is just, it's coming at you. The Italian feelings box is just your mouth. The Irish <laughs> feelings box is the one you put all your feelings in, close the lid, and push it under the bed, never to be spoken of again. Right? Or put it in the hope chest <laughs> <laughs> with all the lace doilies and other things in there. Well, I've got a couple of things I want to talk about during the chat portion of our podcast. Uh, first of all, I really want to strenuously encourage you to join our Patreon right now if you are not a member. On today's Patreon after show, we are going to be doing something we don't typically do. What's that? We're going to be doing a review. We're going to be reviewing 
Season 2, Episode 17 of In the Dark called Home, the spectacular final episode of the season, probably final episode, uh, that was just put out uh, just this past holiday week. We aren't talking about it in the main portion of the podcast. We are going to talk about it on Patreon. So if you're interested in listening to that conversation, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll also get an amazing new episode of Toby's Book Club and a truly enlightening and revealing episode of Married with Podcast that we couldn't even title because you'll find out when you listen to it. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. That's all I'm going to say. I can't recommend listening to it enough. And one other thing we want to mention real quick, we know that for the last couple of weeks, our audio files for our podcast have been a little bit glitchy. And it's ironic and causes me a tremendous amount of despair because, as you know, we're a podcast that reviews other podcasts and we often talk about the audio quality of other podcasts. Um, But this is a part of our transition to our new audio platform. And the way our ads are being delivered is a little bit different. And our production and their technology haven't quite synced up quite yet. But it seems like when the episode's out for a while, like it seems to work itself out. It's like the immediate downloaders need to be seeing the biggest effects of this, right? Yeah, maybe everybody doesn't want to know how the sausage is exactly made. They don't. But But we're aware. as the industry advances and technology advances and our contractual obligations advance, (laughs) advance, look, we had to move over to a new hosting platform, which enables certain new technologies. Some of the times it feels like it's a little half-baked. People are working on it. It's kind of out of our hands. And you know how, like, when you watch a YouTube video, how, like, at first there's, like, an ad inserted? Yeah. You know, it's not part of the video. It's sort of this technology they want all podcasts to use. So that way they can, you know, at some point if they want to swap out or they're everything that you've paid for as an advertiser you get, they want this flexibility. So it does change slightly the way we do our ads. Yeah. Which is, I know everybody's come to love it. We've been, been able to put a spoonful of sugar to let, let that medicine go down. But we're still going to do that. Don't make we're people still like, doing start fast-forwarding through our ads. They're still going to be awesome. And no. we're still recording them live. We're still recording them live. We're just not inserting them live yeah. <laughs> anymore. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, and that's how we don't, honestly, we don't know what order they're going to come out. That's so right. look, at it. it's going to be like a wheel of fortune. Yeah. Ride it with us. We're just going to embrace how fucking random it's going to be. Embrace that with us. We're just going to go with it, right? Oh, my God. And you guys are going to go with us. Yeah, it's a good New Year's uh, adventure, I think. It's like a board game. I'm just saying, like, you know... Someone said, well, can you go back to the other way? No. No, we can't. Sorry, we, we just we just can't. But we're doing our best. Yeah. Kevin, that, that really does seem like you have more angst than I do, which I'm surprised about because well, I have a lot of angst. <laughs> It'll work itself out. It'll it be fine. Please bear with us. Yeah, and it's those files, like a lot of times the mistake is it takes Toby right out of it. <laughs> so it's just the three of us? Yeah, yeah. That's the worst kind of glitch. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Toby. Like this episode so far has like no Toby in it. Yeah. That's yeah. why it's got so many downloads. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have one more thing we need to mention before we get the show started. What's that? In a couple of months, we are going to be putting on a very special episode, the 200th episode of Crime Writers On, a bonanza show, and Mm -hmm. we need you, our listeners, to help contribute to the show. So, Kevin, what would you like our listeners to do? Hey, there's a couple ways you can participate, and some of you already have. Leave us a voice message on our phone line, and we may use it in the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the show, what you like, what you remember. Who you like. Who you like. Who you don't like. We delete the Toby ones, obviously. (laughs) And the number is in the show notes, but in case you're writing around with a pencil right now, the mnemonic device, the telephone number is 7-bleed-bag-1. 
Or you can send us a voice message, or a voice memo, I should say. Record it on your, your smartphone and send us that file to our email address, crimewriterson at gmail.com. Send us an email. We want your participation. Or call us at 7BleedBag1 and leave a message. Your Crime Writers on Memories, how you discovered the show, why you've gotten a thousand other people to subscribe, all that stuff. Well, like our big 200th show, we might not even be in it. <laughs> it just might be everybody else. All righty, you guys. We have special episode art I've been working on. <laughs> it's going to be like one of those clip shows from 1980s sitcoms. <laughs> where it's like, remember last summer? <laughs> Fonzie, remember when Richie's brother Chuck was home from college? <laughs> With the dream harp Red sound? Con, yeah. <laughs> All right. Are you guys finally ready to begin this evening's show? It's a big one. I don't know, but the listeners are. I'm ready. Toby, what about you? Ready? I was born ready, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when you're a journalist, you start reporting a story and things go pretty much as expected. Sure, the details might be surprising. The emotions might touch you more than you anticipated. But the overall story is pretty straightforward. This is not one of those stories. This story is about a man who went to work one day in June 1984 and vanished. Amber Hunt and the Cincinnati Inquirer return with season three of Accused. On a hot summer night in 1984, David Box didn't come home from his job at an Ohio uranium processing plant. The next day, bones were discovered in a 1,300-degree vat of molten salt. Despite the narrow opening in which he'd have to jump through, investigators believed Box threw himself in the vat and died by suicide. I don't know if he died. I mean, he just disappeared. He's not the type of person that would just run off when his roots are here. I know my dad didn't commit suicide. I know he did. I've heard rumors that they thought maybe he was going to be a whistleblower. It was secrecy. Everything was secret. Box's family never bought the suicide angle, especially after safety lapses at the plant came to light very soon after Box's death. Could Box have been a worker who knew too much and died as other whistleblowers in the industry have? For the past year, we've been working to try to unravel this complicated case of confirmation bias, government secrets, and sinister conspiracy theories, some of which we've learned are true. You're not going to get the truth, girls. And if you get the truth, then you better start packing. The eight-part series is a story of corporate malfeasance wrapped in a missing persons case. Accused season three is ambitious, seeking to find answers in a decades-old mystery filled with conspiracy theories, family secrets, and government lies. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from season three of Accused, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the time code listed in our show notes. We should also note that we have listened, all of us, to the entire series, which is available on, I believe, Stitcher Premium. There are some preview episodes available on Accused Patreon. We're not going to spoil the very end of the series, but we have listened to the whole thing, so our review is based on the entirety of the series. Now, Lara Bricker, you sent me a note and you said you almost died when you started listening to this. Why is that? So I started listening to this and I was like, Fernald, holy shit. So I have an uncle who worked there at Fernald. What? At that very plant? He was like an industrial hygienist safety guy at the plant. Now, I always thought he worked there. What is an industrial hygienist? Not for nothing. <laughs> but the industrial hygienist safety guys at that plant 
maybe they were like set up to fail. Wait, or was something? he the guy with the brush for those silkwood showers? No, no. I, he Is was that, the no? guy who would tell them what they had to do to stay safe. But he was—he's uh. always been very private. So I never knew growing up like exactly what he did for work. And then as I was an adult, I was kind of like under the impression, oh, he went and worked at this place when it was a super fun site and it was being decommissioned. And then um, as I started listening, I was like, wait a minute. If he worked there for 30 years, he must have worked there when it was a nuke plant. But he was here for Christmas and he wouldn't say anything Uh. despite my grilling. So I will say when Amber was interviewing people that are still like really not wanting to talk about that place, I saw it firsthand and Fireman Ken was like, Laura, knock it off. He doesn't (laughs) want to talk to you. And I'm like, this has shed so much light on my family. Like it makes so much sense because every time he comes, he's on these diets of like eating to like cure cancer. And so I did get out of him. I said, were you exposed to uranium? And he's like, yep. And I'm like, no wonder he's eating the cancer diet every time he comes here. Like it's so... I found this, I think, probably more interesting than most people because it really sort of gave me a window into this side of my family that, like, has been very mysterious for my whole life. Did you ask your uncle if he worked there when David Box died? Did you ask him if he killed David Box? <laughs> I did. Well, he did. Well, he wouldn't. He wouldn't fess up. He said something like, he "That would be fess really up. horrible." I. <laughs> he, he did. He did. <laughs> No, he wouldn't fess up to working there at the same time. (laughs) Wow. But I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you a little story that just shows you, I think there's like this mentality if you worked at that place that stays with you. So picture this. It's Christmas Eve. We've left church and we're driving around looking at Christmas lights, which is what we like to do on Christmas Eve. We've got everybody in this car. We're driving around. I go, oh my God, I think that house is on fire. And there was a chimney fire. And Ken's like, that's a chimney fire. Call 911. So I call 911 and they're like, we'll send someone. And then Ken's like, okay, things are good. And my uncle says, you know, maybe you shouldn't have butt in and called 911. (laughs) Those people might not have wanted you intruding on their life. Wow. And I was like, people want to know if their house is on fire. (laughs) I think that maybe your uncle Walt has been visited by those guys in the black suit that we heard about on this podcast. That's what I'm saying. Perhaps he's had certain experiences (laughs) such as being uh, approached by the men in in black suits who have told him. You're going to be so mad you call the fire department. (laughs) There were flames coming out of their chimney. (laughs) All right. He's like, do you think you're overreacting? Wow. I'm the fire chief. Shut the fuck up, Uncle Walt. (laughs) This guy was the hygienist, the nuclear hygienist. Don't you think you're overreacting to this house that's on fire by calling? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like Fernald. Yeah, Yeah. it pretty much sounds like everything at Fernald. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was interesting. But I really wanted more information. Ken shut me down. But I did find out in looking in records that he worked there in 1982. So he was there when this guy died. Of course he was. Wow. Of course, I have a relative who worked there when this happened. Incredible. All right. Now, Toby, um, this podcast, I really struggle. I mean, it is a true crime podcast, sort of, but it's really a podcast about something much bigger. It's really about corporate and government malfeasance, right? What do you think about this idea of taking this true crime frame and using it to do investigative journalism about something bigger? It reminds me of good detective fiction in some ways. I, I think there's a lot of crime authors who um, that's how they construct their books, right? Is that they, they uh, come up with a crime that's supposed to shed some kind of light on society or, or an issue or whatever. 
so I think the idea of it is is really good and really interesting. And then I think the choice of this kind of Stranger Things-ish government, corporate secrecy uh, around stuff that's both sort of a security issue and also super dangerous. I, I thought it was I thought it was really effective, quite honestly. While it isn't quite the like one hundred percent, you know, we're gonna solve this mystery, you're learning about a lot of other stuff too, which I thought was really interesting. I think that's been something that some of the better podcasts and more savvy journalists have been doing. They have been using true crime frame to present larger issues mm-hmm. on purpose. Yeah. Um, thinking of like Connie Walker mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, Missing and Murder to talk about issues of indigenous people. She says that. She's tricking yeah, us. She's yeah. learning about the uh, yeah. atrocities committed against indigenous people by wrapping them as a true crime podcast. I forget the name of the journalist, but The Village. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin Ling. Did the same thing. Even to like a lesser extent, like Dan Taberski, mm-hmm. sort of looking at in Missing Richard Simmons and Running from Cops. There's a story, but it's about celebrity and, um, you know, other societal Patient issues. Patient Zero, yeah. true crime mystery frame to talk okay, about sure. a yeah. medical story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think it shows how versatile the idea of true crime can be. And even if it's, you know, you somewhat label it like that to get the attention, to get the audience, some people will go and say, no, this isn't for me um, because it's too far afield. But I think that uh, what Amber Hunt does here. I think it's, it's pretty smart. You know, I got to say, like, when I found out sort of like what this season's going to be about a guy that maybe he committed suicide and maybe he didn't and there's no body, I'm thinking, where is this going to go? Mm. Is this going to go anywhere satisfying? Yeah. Because it seems like, you know, there's a lot here that could go wrong. And we'll say, you know, they do land the plane. Mm. Now, you like Amber's writing style. Uh, Very much. I like Amber's writing style a lot. I do think that she has some of the best expository writing of any podcast we've listened to in this genre. I just want to play a clip of, of what I'm talking about there. David lived in Loveland, Ohio, which is about 15 miles east of Cincinnati. He worked about 30 miles west of where he lived at an industrial site where Butler and Hamilton counties meet. Because it was a bit of a trek to work, he used to meet a co-worker partway at a White Castle, and the two men would finish the drive to the plant together. That's what happened the night of June 18th, when the men worked third shift. But this night, something strange happened. When the shift ended, David didn't rejoin his co-worker to be driven back to his car. That's important, right, Kevin, to just sort of be able to take, especially in those very like lofty concepts like the uh, temperature fluctuations in a salt thing or like uh, how a plant works or the complications of nuclear armament like across, you know, geopolitical boundaries. Like it's important to be able to write succinctly and clearly and make it so that you're not losing the listener. Right. Y- yes. But also to be able to maintain your own voice. And to get that through to the listener, you have a voice. And she she does, she's transparent almost to a fault where she's talking about the things, you know, what she's thinking. And, and in a way that isn't pedantic, you know, I really feel like I get a sense of who Amber Hunt is by listening to her talk. She's cautious. She's smart. But she's also meticulous. Mm. And so I think she does a good job of conveying all those things by showing mm. and not by telling. Lara, what did you think of their uh, physical recreation of the vat hole 
by building a model of it in Amber's yard and asking guys <laughs> to try to shimmy their way through it to see whether or not it was possible that David Box, I don't know, did a flying swan dive uh, uphill into a 9 by 22 inch hole into a thing that was 1300 yeah. degrees. Yeah. And I'm going to help. Yeah, do not try to jump in. Just yeah, okay. e ease yourself in. All right. <laughs> He'd made it inside, but only by keeping his body stiff and perfectly upright. And even then, it was tight around his torso. That's, I'm getting, that's, that's hard right here. What do you think about that? That really was above and beyond anything that uh, I, I would have done. I mean, it was amazing. But I was list as I was listening to this, I'm like, I kind of wish I was there to watch this whole sort of recreation like taking place because... Check out the video. Oh, is there a video? Yeah, online. Yeah, I watched it today. But even just, I have to tell you, those were the hardest episodes of this whole thing for me to listen to were the descriptions of how hot it was how the apple would explode and disintegrate. And I'm just listening to this going, oh my God, like what a way to go. And it was extremely detailed. Like we were talking about before, she, you know, Amber's very thorough. Amber Brockovich, as I'm going to call her from now on. <laughs> um, very thorough. You know, we had that guy with the volcano expert guy that's sounding in on what happens when someone falls in hot lava. But the actual recreation of the salt that, you know, I did ask Uncle Walt, I said, have you ever been in Building 6? And he said, many times. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> did you see the salt fat? And he said, yes. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> But it's just that is like probably the scariest, most horrific way that I think out of all the things. And I, I know this is saying a lot, but of all the things we've watched and listened to, I mean, in terms of how somebody has been killed or died, um, this is probably the most horrific one I think we've ever discussed. See, I, I don't know if I, you I guys agree. I don't think it's clear that he died that way. I think there's an excellent chance he may have been dead and then his body was thrown into the salt lava thing. Well, I Either mean, I, it's, it would be very hard to kill someone that way, right? Like bring them up oh, to a ladder and then... Can you imagine? So I, oh. I think I my opinion is that it's much more likely that he came to an end and that was the decision made to dispose of his body in that way. It's a good place to I do I mean, it. they throw their leftovers of lunch in there. I mean, speaking of like... Oh. It says a lot about kind of like the quality of the quality control and the safety of the place. Yeah. When workers are just comfortable, like throwing their food. Yeah. Well, if they this... put uranium in it, why? I mean, lunch bags, no problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chicken bones. Chicken yeah. bones. Oh, my God. So, um, Toby, talk about that conspiracy to maintain, you know, secrets around the plant. To what extent do you think that? could have played into Box's death? Or do you think that was a coincidence or just a far-fetched idea? What do you think? I, I guess my sense of this whole thing is that there was definitely, I don't know if you exactly want to call it a conspiracy or whether it's a, uh, you know, a policy or whatever, but to keep what was going on at the plant a secret, especially stuff that might affect safety of people who are working there or living near there and possibility of litigation and things like this. So I don't think there's any question about that. So my sense of it is that to the extent that his death affects any of that stuff, that there is a conspiracy to keep it quiet. Like it, there may be none at all if in fact it was something completely unrelated to plant safety. But if he was being a whistleblower or he was, you know, somebody felt threatened by things that he was doing and that was the reason why he was killed and that and then he was like put in the vat. If that's the case, then I, I think there is like intentionally or unintentionally just the atmosphere of secrecy and denying everything, 
equals a conspiracy to cover up what happened to him. And I, I certainly think it was difficult, made it more difficult to investigate. And my guess would be that the investigation was dropped early and not really thoroughly investigated because of pressure being put on the police by, you know, one of the town's large employers. Or lies, just being told to the police by one or, of the town's large Or just large lies. Employers. Although, you know, to tell you the truth, like unless he's really just willing to take people on their word, like it just seemed like there are so many obvious issues with the initial investigation. Hmm. It doesn't seem like his heart was in it, if nothing yeah. else. Well, one of the moments that really struck me was like, this is 35 years after this death, right? And 35 years after the events that we're talking about in the podcast. Uh, in episode four, Amber interviews these two guys. She's supposed to interview uh, Bob Sadler, who's like the former laborer turned manager who wants to talk about like, the health problems and the cover-up around the plant. And then this other guy just piggybacks on his interview, this guy, John Kispert, who then gets super testy with Amber. And when she's just saying, like, what do you think about the fact that the government lied about all this stuff? But the DOE straight up lied about some of the... That's a harsh word. That's Kispert talking. But it, it, it is actually true, though, right? That's a harsh word. No, so then I'm, how I'm would you gonna, characterize it? I'm not going to say they lied. You don't have to. I did. <laughs> but I mean, if but I am I wrong? you ask me right? <laughs> no, I would be more That's true. Or less. That's a, a verbal take yeah. of mine more than right. an actual question. Um, what? So if it's not a lie, then what is it? That's the same question, but coming from a different <laughs> angle. No, if it's because not you're a saying lie, you wouldn't call it, it a lie. So what, what would you characterize it as? What are we trying to characterize here? <laughs> What do we think of this interview and of the fact that 35 years later, like what could possibly be at stake for this guy that he's still unwilling to just either have a conversation, but he's responding in this particular way? It struck me as a little over the top. Laura, what do you think? Oh, he, that was fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I, wasn't listening to I mean, I, I can't take this grilling anymore. I'm like, she's talking in a perfectly normal voice, asking questions completely rationally. And but I think it also kind of speaks to like what I was saying before, that they you know, the people that were associated with this place still have a huge level of, I want to say paranoia, but also like they're really touchy about it. And it just that was crazy. That was one of my favorite lines, though, along with the guy who says, you're not going to get the truth. And if you get the truth, you better start packing because you're going to mm. die or whatever he <laughs> said, that guy. But it's I, I think it's, it's the fact that it has lasted as long as it has with that level of sensitivity speaks to a lot of guilty conscience and mm. what was actually going on there, you know? I was waiting for a little lady <laughs> comment. But see, I think what, what it does is he, you know, even though she's doing it politely and, you know, not, but really sort of the soft touch is that it's still challenging to his worldview. And so, you know, even after all these years, he still has a perspective about what his time meant there, you know, whether he has good feelings about his you know employer that he worked all those years for, um, Kevin, these dudes, like so, another dude says, it's like safety uranium. Do you oh, think it's yeah. safety uranium? Oh hell no, <laughs> Toby. No, do you but think I'm it's safety uranium? I'm talking specifically about this guy. <laughs> right, this guy's like middle management. But he says he felt safe. That's the guy who safe. says I felt safe. But why did he feel safe? Because everybody told him right. it was safe. Right, and they had a policy to deceive, inveigle, and obfuscate. Hmm. And I think you also, these are the things you tell yourself if you're managing people who are working mm -hmm. in unsafe conditions. I mean, think right. about Chernobyl at the very beginning where the guy who's in charge 
it's just like, oh no, it's it's not that. It's not dangerous. You know, the radiation isn't high. You know, he's just he's just like going through all these rationalizations for why it's not what it is. Do you think it's safe to eat a teaspoon of uranium, Toby? <laughs> I don't know. I'm like I'm on this whole new What's diet. What's the Patreon level for that? <laughs> is it a spice? How do how do you how do you even approach it? I don't know. I don't know, but you heard about this other guy, Larry Hicks, who was sprayed with uranium and then died like five days later. Oh, that was horrible. Yeah. And then they took his organs. Yes, organ thieves. What that was a whole hell? other side story that I did not expect. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, uh, the organ Creepy. thieves of the government, and which which brings me to a character I really want to talk about: DC Cole. I think he knew something, and I think it had to deal with Plant 8. I think it had to deal with the releases, uh, the threat to the public health and the environment. Um, it's possible he was a whistleblower or was going to be a whistleblower. These conspiracy theory journalists, I feel like we all know somebody like this, right? I mean, there are certainly people working in our community doing, quote, journalism who are kind of like this. Yeah, one comes to Laura mind, Bricker. Whose name I won't yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, the one whose name I won't say for a period of time was also a spokesperson for a major state government agency uh, not too long ago. And is also a journal, a quote, journalist like this with like uh-huh. always advancing these conspiracy theories. Anyway, um, yeah, we all know journalists like this who are actually, you know, kind of conspiracy theorists or like personal warriors. Like, you know, they have the answer and then they look for connections based on what they already think they know. And we recently listened to another podcast, Bard's Town, right. which also featured a journalist like this. One journalist? of the, I think one of the blogger. I think one of the strongest aspects of this story is how Amber deals with the problematic nature of DC Cole and what he brings to the story. Cole wrote a book about Fernald, which I've read. It is objectively not a good book. I'm not casting judgment on the conclusions he draws in it, but simply how it's written. It's disorganized and repetitive and poorly punctuated. Editors are our friends. Yeah, I think that what was different about Accused is that they provide context for who he was. And and don't just put him out there on the same level as every other person they were hearing interviewed. That's my huge problem with Bardstown. Which is what happened about, yeah, yeah, Bardstown. Because I think... If you blinked, or whatever the audio equivalent of blinking is, you might have missed that this guy was just was a 1980s equivalent of a blogger, self-published author, and, you know, with all these crazy theories that sometimes, you know, the stop clock, where he kind of gets onto the, this thing here about the organs and the, you know, some of the craziness, crazy stuff was built on truth. But I thought it was very responsible, the way they presented DC, and explaining why he's important to this story and to the extent that he is and no more or no less. Right. And so he was on this the story was on unsolved mysteries because of him. Right. He was doing a lot of championing on behalf of the family before he and the daughter had this incredible falling out and yeah. Amber recently emails <laughs> the daughter sent him. DC. That was a rather sensational little story you have conjured up there. I mean you should win an Oscar for that one. Can I play myself in the movie? Do I sound sarcastic? Good. That is what I was going for. Some of the stuff you wrote was absurd. I especially liked how you misquoted everyone. I also wonder how you got the majority of your information. It's no wonder someone tried to kill you. Laura, what did you think of DC and his relationship with the family and how what ended up happening there? Yeah, we've all known people like this. It was it was interesting to listen to. I, I appreciated how um, 
you know, there was the one passage that Amber had to call and read out loud to Amanda because it was so ridiculous, but also just like, you know, the grammatical errors and stuff. But uh, yeah, and, and then she added in the little, I like her little asides, editors are our friends. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I, I also appreciated the quest to find him and the like nonstop trying to find him, trying to find him, and then finding, oh, well, actually, this is his real name and, and finally getting that editor who had worked with him. But I think when I heard it was like, you know, it's like a free publication. And so they're not paying you to give them stories. But then going from that to then sort of the format of his book. But I again, it goes to this whole sort of overarching sort of theme around this place, which is just this, this paranoia and conspiracy theory sort of mentality that really takes hold as like, of, of a lot of people, you know, involved in this as soon as is, you know, they have some sort of connection to this this place and this story. Now, Toby, I don't want to get too much into the ending of the series, and a lot of our listeners will not have had the chance to listen to it yet, but I just want to mention one fact that Amber brings up about her reporting is that it's very difficult to get interviews with people uh, who you know were kind of involved in the case or knew David because many of them are sick or dead. I found that really poignant and also kind of telling and creepy. What did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I felt the same way. You know, I, I hate to compare it to another fictional thing, but it, it reminded me a little bit of Dark. Mm. Same. Where people are, are sort of living with the consequences of things that happened in the 80s that they, you know, may not have known enough about to realize what was going to happen. Toby, um, there was even a reference where they talked about one of the rumors that the plant being that like birds would fall out of the sky from the steam and coming out of the Oh, that's back. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's like dark. I yeah. forgot about that. That part of it, it's pretty dark. You could see how it would play out in like a movie or something. But it, it is this idea that you would, all these people you want to talk to, they can't talk to you. Hmm. And, and it's probably related to the sort of big underlying issue. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about 80-year-olds. A lot of people were like in their were like 30 or in their mid-30s in 1985. So they would be in their, you know, six early 60s or mid-60s now. I think it's easy to sort of say, well, you know, people get older, they whatever. But like a lot of people are sick or dead that would have been good to talk to for this story. And that, that really struck me. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review to season three of Accused Venerable True Crime Podcast that took a very uh, big left turn this season with a different kind of story. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for season three of Accused. Thumbs up. You know, not only, you know, obviously I had this personal connection to the story, but this is really interesting. It's like that sort of Aaron Brockovich, you know, environmental story with a lot of really interesting characters. Um, some some really good lines. I especially liked a line at the ending about trying to use a Band-Aid on a bullet wound and how that was, you know, to uh, illustrate a point. But it's it's a really interesting big issue. There's some really interesting historical context there um, in terms of the Cold War, but also salt, lava, vat. I mean, um, I think you need to listen to it just to learn about that. So uh, thumbs up. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Accused Season 3? Yeah, I give it a thumbs up as well. I really liked it. It's really well reported. It's really well written. You kind of follow Amber. You hear you hear the way she um, speaks to, you know, sources a little bit about like sort of her thoughts about what she's doing. And I thought the story itself was fascinating. And the, the 80s stuff, it's it's really weird, quite honestly. Uh, but I, big, big thumbs up. I really liked it. What about you, Kevin? Uh, I thought this was uh, very good. I'm going to give it a thumbs up. 
we should, you know, acknowledge that we know Amber Hunt mm-hmm. uh, and that we hung out with her and we find her to be very nice and that I gave season two a thumbs down. Mm-hmm. So if I didn't like this, I would give it a thumbs down. I would tell you that. <laughs> we know. I'm just blowing smoke. Sorry, Amber. <laughs> um, I did like this podcast. It's dense. You know, it's really it's a real journalist podcast. You definitely see a lot of what went into it. Everything that they did, they certainly upped root talk to a new level when you build a vat. Yeah. Or at least, you know, with lumber from Home Depot, it's more than any of us would have done. I wouldn't say that it's entertaining. Hmm. It's not that kind of podcast. It isn't the kind of thing where you go, oh, this is light and I'm intrigued, you know, in an entertaining kind of way. It's it's more public affairs kind of like, yeah, this is really important stuff and you can appreciate it for that. And lastly, I'd say the endings are important because, again, you're like, oh, well, nobody knew what happened to this guy. He could have committed suicide. How do you prove someone doesn't commit suicide unless you have evidence of a murder, which there doesn't seem to be any? I'm like, where is this going to go and how is this going to end? It doesn't necessarily have to have the answer, but it needs to have a satisfying narrative answer. Mm. And I think she does that. Yeah, I think it lands the plane as well. I'm not going to spoil what the ending is, but certainly something happens that you get the sense that like it was worth it to do the project uh, more so than just house having listened to it. I really like the season. I don't think it was perfect. I think that um, some of the lighter moments I would have backed off on a little bit. I would have leaned a little bit more into the darkness of the story if it were me. Like I, I appreciate that Amber wants us to hear that she also has lighter conversations with some of her sources and so forth. And I understand why they make those editorial choices. To me, the best parts of the podcast were the darker parts of the podcast. So if I could make any change at all, I would have dialed back on some of the attempts to explain away certain things or to show some personality stuff and just really dig into the journalistic chops here. Uh, Amber Hunt is a trained and experienced investigative journalist, and it really shows in this podcast. It really shows. And good on the newspaper for backing them. Yeah, yeah. It's the USA Today that uh, owns their newspaper now. It's the USA Today group, and I know it's a risk for a newspaper group like USA Today to invest in this kind of long-form reporting on something that happened a long time ago. And it's it's a big deal. And you have to understand that, like, reporters like Amber Hunt and Madeline Barron, they're not like Payne Lindsay. They're not getting rich from making this podcast. They're just going doing their salary journalist job and making something that's big and successful. And it's the company that benefits. So it is an investment the company's making. And, you know, I that's why kind of the art of the podcast is impressive, because, you know, just knowing that Amber and Amanda, like, put that art into it. It matters, and, and it, I think you hear it. But I really liked it. I'm giving it a big thumbs up for season three of Accused. It is dense, like you said. I almost think it could have been denser. Like Those are the best parts of the podcast to me. So I'm a fan. Thumbs up for me. Moving on. In the CD underbelly of the internet, there's an unwritten rule. Rule zero. Don't fuck with cats. Netflix's latest documentary is its most provocative yet. In Don't Fuck With Cats, The Hunt for an Internet Killer, we follow a gang of armchair detectives looking for the person posting videos of animal cruelty. It was the worst video I've ever seen. It needs to be stopped immediately. People went nuts. So we started looking. He could have been anywhere on the planet. This person wants to play a game of cat and mouse, and I'm up for that. While the internet sleuths scan the world to find their suspect, the cat killer taunts and threatens them. But before law enforcement takes the virtual manhunt seriously, the mystery man turns his violent depravity on an unsuspecting college student. 
my mind doesn't want to believe it's true. These are the things, the telltale sign of somebody that's going to become a serial killer. Don't Fuck With Cats is not explicit in its depiction of animal cruelty, but has some extremely difficult scenes to get through. The film is also a tribute to armchair detectives everywhere. It's also a cautionary tale about the inevitability of escalating violence in some criminals. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Don't Fuck With Cats. So to remain spoiler free, go to the time code listed in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, first of all, we have to talk about the most important uh, kind of point in this documentary that I know a lot of our listeners are already talking about and a lot of people who've seen it online have already talking about. And something, Kevin, that I talked about with the director of the documentary for that Netflix podcast was the choice to include any of the scenes that uh, sort of hint at the real videos that were posted online by this guy in which he killed cats. My take is that I, I can't watch anything with cruelty to animals. As you know, Kevin, I left the room several times and you had to call me back in. Mm-hmm. And there are actually tools online now. People have tweeted about what minute stamps you need to get through to sort of skip those, even those those like stills. But my take is that this is what activated these armchair detectives. So it's important, I think, for the audience to at least understand what it was that they saw. Laura, I know you had a very hard time with this part of documentary. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I understand that they, you know, that 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 is what motivated them. I I didn't even want to watch this. I had to like steal myself up and then I'm watching it. And Fireman Ken left the room. He was like, fuck that. I'm not watching this. We saw some. I wish we had seen less. Um, It's really hard to watch. And I and I think it's one of those things that we've talked about before is like what and I saw some of the people in our discussion group talking about it. Like, why is it harder to watch animal cruelty than it is to watch like cruelty, you know, or where people are victims? Because they don't know, because I think it's harder to watch a helpless creature that doesn't have any sense of what's happening to it. That's I think psychologically more difficult. Yeah, it is. And I think that animals are sort of, you know, they give you like their devotion and they don't know that there's this level of cruelty. They don't have that awareness and they rely upon you. And it is just... So I will tell you, like, I tuned out for about half of this entire series because I was just like, I just couldn't even, like, listen to them talking about it. And then, um, you know, I saw somebody posted the, you know, here's how you can get around watching the parts that are disturbing. And I was like, it's like every other minute is disturbing, even though they're not showing that much. I mean, they have the snake scene. We have the carrying around dead kitten scene. I'm like... I had to watch a Disney movie when I was done with this. It's just really hard to watch. And I understand why they did it. But I think for people that are like hardcore animal people, I don't know. You know? But, yeah, but Laura, don't you understand that the people like John Green and Deanna are heroes are oh, yeah, also no. hardcore animal people? Oh, and no, that's what no. activated them? Oh, no. And I, 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 that was the thing I said is like, I did not want to watch this, but... Those two, I was like, first of all, good for them, because I think they did like a way more thorough investigation than the police ever would have done in this case, like analyzing like when, whenever Deanna went on that vacuum forum to find out the yellow vacuum thing. And, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know what? The police wouldn't have done this. They would right. not have put this much effort into this. So, I mean, good for them for helping to catch this this guy. But it was just, um, and I have to say, and I loved how they showed like her and like they showed them like logging into Facebook. Yeah. And uh, did anybody notice how long John Green's password was? It was like <laughs> John 30 Green's no characters. <laughs> <laughs> like, Quote John Green. Yeah, I, 
have an actual question about John Green. Okay, is this yeah. somebody who didn't want to use his real name, but he's on camera doing in-person interviews? Like, how does the Kevin? You're a journalist. How does that work? You, you just read. <laughs> <laughs> you just take it. All right. So, Kevin, you know, I know that you also had thoughts about the sort of choice to show Deanna's reaction instead of yeah, yeah. What do you think of that? I think that that was a better way of doing it, which was to instead of show the video was to show her reaction to the video. And you do get to hear the audio, which is the vacuum cleaner, which is much. It's a, I mean, it is Bad. it is rough. It is not explicit. It's not super graphic. But it is enough that it is disturbing. I am not as sensitive to that as other people are. But it also was very difficult for me to get through that. And I'm like, it was very suspenseful and not in a good way. There was also, you know, like later on, there was a shot of one of the kittens oh, dead. yeah. And I was like, oh, I so don't know bad. if they it's needed bad. that. No, they needed that. There was a lot. There's a lot that I probably yeah. would have cut. I, I, I think do think there's a lot of times it. when you do stuff like that that can be graphic, whether it's like police camera stuff. They go down to like, at what frame do we stop? Hmm. You know, how do we get there? And we still tell the emotional part of it. We still build the drama. But it doesn't go too far. Mm. And, you know, in editing suites, there are arguments over, like, which at which frame to stop. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was, the demand was there for a recut. I mean, I think it was important to show as much as they did to the first one, because, you know, the first quarter of it is about them using what they can find on that video to try and narrow down the sky. Exactly. And if they're just describing the video or or. I guess I could show stills or something, but it just wouldn't be the same thing. It's like, here's this video. What can we learn from it? And the answer is actually a fair amount. Yeah. What kind of outlet? What about the poster? What about the bedspread? What about the vacuum? That the was, Russian speaking. That was felt. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. doorknobs from Lithuania. Yeah. <laughs> that was the favorite part of mine. Now, Toby, a big theme of the documentary is, and this is something that I think Bear Brook, in some ex- to some extent, is about as well, about armchair detectives, these sort of cyber detectives who form these social circles online and who do, in the case of these two people specifically, very detailed, kind of ethical and responsible Real detecting and detective work using like legal and data driven methods. Of course, we then get a glimpse in the documentary of how that can go really awry when it was sort of in that larger Facebook group and the group think of it and the biker vigilante animal guy <laughs> sort of like messing shit up for them. Toby, what did you think of this? These portraits of these, you know, responsible, that's the only word I can put of it, armchair detectives and those bigger questions that the armchair detective community uh, brings to light. Well, when you said something about armchair detectives everywhere at the start of this, I was like, uh, I don't know. I kind of feel like this showed the good and the bad of it. And the good of it seemed like it was a very small percentage. <laughs> you know, I mean, they say they had like thousand people on their Facebook investigation page or whatever. And they had to whittle it down. Yeah. Once they got like, what, like 15 people that was responsible again. It has to be right. a small group. So yeah. it's a small, a small percentage who are actually either doing it seriously or responsibly or some combination of that stuff. Uh, but for them, I don't know how you have a full-time job, do all that stuff and also sleep. Yeah, but that's that's exactly what happens. I don't know if you listen to Bear Brook, but Rhonda Randall, who's an amateur sleuth who like finds people, has a full-time job, does this. Becky Heath, who helped solve the case, 
is a librarian for an investment firm full time, very challenging, demanding job, and then spends 10 additional hours a day doing this like data research online. It really is an obsession, I think, to this community of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I think you can, you can find like a blueprint for how these things ought to be done, which is you do all this stuff as intensely, but also in a legal way. And then when you've got what you think is a solution, you turn it over to the to law enforcement and hopefully they listen. Yeah. And in their case, the first yeah. set of cops didn't listen and didn't care, even though they had like the location of the guy. And the second set of cops... We're better, I think, the Montreal. But it's cars, hard to. But I mean, who, Toronto one was on vacation. <laughs> but how do you evaluate this stuff? I mean, I'm sure they sound. They must have sounded nuts when some cop gets to thing. Oh, it's this guy, and you know this, that, and the other thing. He's probably like, uh, okay, I'll throw that on the pile. But there's no reason why I'd spend any more time with that in particular than anything else. It wasn't until some of that stuff checked out that people were like, oh, okay, now I see. So and I and I think that would be the the frustration, is because you, the people who do it are obsessed. They come across as obsessive when they're talking to people in authority, and that's not always like a good way of impressing your seriousness. Imagine get being a cop and getting a folder with like twenty thousand files on it, you know, yeah. <laughs> from a, from a person who's not a, a professional investigator that it has. But I have to tell you, like Luca Magnata in particular, the killer in this case. It's like without that research, it would, he'd be so hard to pin down. I mean, this is a person, just as an example, who had like hundreds or thousands of fan websites about himself that he created and maintained online. Uh, he had that whole... Um, the rumor, the that, rumor he was, yeah. that he was dating uh, Carla Homolka and that he was interviewed by a journalist about it. He probably started the rumors himself. He like invaded this investigative group and, you know, sent Deanna videos of her workplace, uh, which, you know, who knows if he actually went there and took them himself or not. But like this is a busy guy who was getting a lot done for years before he even made these videos and came on the radar. He clearly was a very complicated character. And it's almost like the record keeping and file keeping of him. Like there's no other way to track him besides that. You know what yeah. I mean, Laura? You know what I'm yeah. talking about? Oh, yeah. No, he was. I mean, he was really uh, quite adept at not only staying ahead of them, but also toying with them as this was taking place and almost seemed to sort of revel in that um, that attention that he was getting. So it, it was just amazing that when when they showed uh, it was Deanna's computer and she was going through all the individual images that they had made still images from the video. But when you're seeing like how she had organized the files in this case, you're like, my God, just the amount of work that went into this. But, you know, I have to tell you this. We have a cat caper going on in my town right now. And I'm afraid that the people that are going to the police are going to sound like this. Um, some lady has been trapping people's cats and going over a few towns over and like releasing them. Really? So not even trapping them. Yeah, not even trapping them and taking them to the SPCA. And so this woman I know, like last year, her cat disappeared for like three weeks. It was an indoor outdoor cat. Finally, they found it a few towns over. Some family had taken it in and they're like, how the hell did our cat get over there? And so they had this whole thing of like, maybe it got in a truck and got over there or something. Well, this week, her cat goes missing again. She finds it in a trap in this lady's backyard. And the lady has a sign up where she's been keeping like, no, like how many like numbers of how many cats she's trapped. Oh, my God. 
Of course, there'd be a lower brick or Italian somehow. Oh, I'm all over it. I'm going to go like take this lady down because I'm like, what the fuck? But but as I'm listening to (laughs) watching the show, I'm like, take my cat, motherfucker. I'm like, listen, like watching it. I'm like seeing how these people could be coming across a little bit like these. Are these people legit? Are they crazy? Are they? There is something to be said for that when you get emotional about something where it is something like this that you're particularly invested in seeing through. All right. So Luca uh, subsequently posts another horrible video, two horrible more videos of cat cruelty that the team sort of looks at and investigates, the one with the snake and the one with the bathtub. We won't have to get into details. Um, Except there was another set of hands. Yes. I know exactly who that set of hands belonged to. Should I just tell you guys? It's not Manny? No. It's the person, whoever it is who owns the snake. Like, literally, this guy probably went on Craigslist and, like, put out an ad, like, I'm looking for somebody who has a snake that can come to my house and, like, let me feed something to it or whatever. There's probably a little marketplace for that, just like there is for every other fucking weird thing on the internet. Because he didn't have a snake. He didn't own a snake. So that belongs to the snake owner, right? It's not Manny Lopez. Let's be real. No, and that that is a thing, because my neighbor just got rid of his guinea pigs. And you can't put anything like that on on the internet because the people with snakes will come take your guinea pigs or, or, you know, and they'll feed them to the snakes. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so mystery solved. (laughs) That's what happened. What the the hell is going on here? (laughs) I'm solving the mystery. We got cat abductions. We got guinea pigs being fed to snakes. (laughs) You can't be too careful, Toby. So, Toby, the, the documentary really does take a turn at the end of episode one and into episode two with the murder of June Lin in Montreal. In the previous videos, the object on the bed were cats. In this video, it was an actual person. And I'm like, what the fuck? This is a very now uh, different kind of investigation. We actually get dropped into a police investigation at this point and hear from some of the detectives in Montreal about their shoe leather work in tracking down Luca Magnata. Behind the suitcase, there were many, many garbage bags. In total, there were 33 bags. But I noticed a red brownish substance that was dripping down under the trash bags. I had the feeling it was blood. What did you think of this part of the documentary? Sort of talking to that lady detective, also known as a detective, by the way. Uh, (laughs) That was super sexy. Sorry. Um, And she sort of talks about, you know, going into the apartment and like the smell of blood. And you hear all this like real good, like cop shoe leather stuff. I thought that was a big turn in the documentary. And it kind of, to me, like picked up steam at that point. What did you think? Yeah, I don't know if it picked up. Like, I wasn't feeling like the first episode was very boggy. You know, I, I was I stayed interested in it, but it does it does change course. And, you know, one of the questions I had kind of at the end of all of this is in the end, these Internet sleuths, were they as critical in finding? I mean, wouldn't he have been found anyway? Didn't they figure this all out without the Internet stuff? That was just sort of like a, a side story. But it is. I mean, it's interesting. And it's, you know, in this day where there's so many security cameras and it's it's just you're tracked. I mean, I don't know how much like in Durham, New Hampshire, like I don't know if everywhere I go here is tracked. But in these cities, like there's so many security cameras and all these businesses facing inward and outward and stuff that it's possible to recreate pretty carefully who's coming in, who's going out, what they're carrying, all this stuff. I, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought the, the detective 
it was interesting where she does get emotional at one point, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, Claudette Hamlin. She's the detective. Yeah. She, yeah. They, they initially believe that Luca is the victim. But then I think I think that they do do a really good job of painting a full portrait of June Lin, the victim. Uh, they they have his best friend on in right. the documentary and they he's not just a detail that they leave hanging. That that part of the story is fully fleshed out. Can I say something about Toby's point? I sure. th- I think that you can't say whether or not they would have caught him without the the detect the armchair detectives, but they did give the cops a name right away, mm. which is why they were able to like okay now it's a manhunt, which is the whole episode three, where they eventually found out that was it. I mean perhaps, uh, but I mean that was the advantage, and who knows how long it would have taken a detective to find the video, one lunatic, one ice pick, if they weren't looking for it specifically. You know, so I, th- I think you do got to give them some props. Can we talk about Luca's mother? Ugh. The animal activists, in my opinion, they're a disgrace. They're crazy. Acting like high school children, using the internet to destroy somebody. They're so inquisitive and yet so naive. Like if you really want to be a wannabe investigator, find the whole story. Because, guys, you're after the wrong person here. There's someone else responsible here. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. I have a lot of thoughts about Luca's mother because, first of all, the fact that she sat down and gave this interview is incredible. Clearly, Luca's upbringing was not great, and she's probably part of that story, right? And she sort of talks about his, you know, sex work and his working in, you know, in porn and all that stuff very cavalierly. And then also talks about the potential that he committed these crimes, killing these cats and this person very cavalierly. She's a really unusual character. Laura, what did you think of her? I wanted to punch her. Really? Um, well, I but I tried. She made me so angry because I was just like, and I kept trying to say, like, be kind. It's it's her son. Like, imagine how you would feel. Like, she's trying to find a reason why he would have done this. But the level of denial that she had of, of everything that he was involved in and, and the way that she just bought his lies about Manny, I'm like... Like, it was just ridiculous. Even when it came out that, like, Manny wasn't even a real person, she's still hanging on to this Manny bullshit. I, I did think it was interesting that she sat down and talked. And I do think that it did, in, in like, listening to her talk, I, I definitely did have that sort of sense of, like, well, there's a little more to the story here of why this guy is so messed up. Um, but I, I still don't feel like I had that extra piece as to what then turned him into this really violent serial killer and cat killer. But I, I, you know, it it also said something, the fact that she did sit down because it seemed like that, that level of denial and belief in him was still so strong that she felt like she's going to set the record straight. So I just was getting really angry as I was listening to her. So I had to kind of tune her out after a while. Toby, I think feels a little more kindly toward Luca's mom. What are your thoughts, Toby? Well, I, I, I don't know. What do you do? If it's your kid, and I think my sense of her is that she saw him as a victim uh, in that he was, you know, bullied. I mean, he's not a big guy. Uh, You know, when you actually see him, he looks like a he looks like a boy, you know, Mm. and, you know, I, I don't know what you expect her to say, really, other than just like turning it around and just being like, you know, my kid is a monster 
and that's the way it is. I mean, I think if she, you know, she spent years with him, I'm sure struggling, who knows? I mean, maybe she's got her own sort of emotional problems or whatever, but it seems as though struggling for years with her son being a loner, an outcast, being bullied, and then, you know, having this dream to be an actor that doesn't come through for him and then having to fall back into prostitution and and porn and stuff like this. And it seems like it's this tragic, you know, narrative arc basically of his life. And so it's not hard for me to see a mother and who knows what's going on with the father, but I mean, she's certainly like portrayed in this as being sort of a lone figure, seeing this sort of animal cruelty stuff as being a product of his being victimized and believing him when for, you know, I guess for years, he's talking about this guy, Manny, and he gives, you know, to both, I would assume her, but also the shrink, this list of all the stuff that Manny has has done to him. I mean, he makes And the this, lawyer, you mean? The lawyer in New oh, York? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, hires? the lawyer, yeah. Um, <laughs> the one who, quote, looks, looks like, like Michael, Michael Douglas. Douglas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe if you squint real hard. So I, I guess when, when I was watching her, I was like, this is this is like a tragic situation for her. And I don't know if you can expect parents, especially parents of, of kids who they see as being basically lifelong victims, to be able to see clearly their children's capacity for violence or or sociopathy or whatever. Um, Kevin, episode three of this documentary turns into a Bourne film, right? It's a chase film. It becomes a chase movie, yeah. What do you think of that episode and what do you think of sort of the way the documentary handles it? And finally, what do you think of the guy in the Berlin Internet Cafe Who's the hero of this whole damn thing? <laughs> oh, yeah, him. I love that guy. Oh, my God, I love him. Well, I'll just say I think like the three episodes have distinct personalities. The first one is sort of this procedural. The second one is like a police investigation kind of mm-hmm. putting that together. And the last one is sort of this chase. Uh, so as far as the Internet guy... Yeah, just go back there and get them. <laughs> and then like 30 cops come running into the store because they happen to be driving by in a van. But <laughs> Laura, what are your thoughts? Oh, I was going to say my favorite part about that was when he's like, I think that's the guy. And by the way, I love he's got two monitors because he's like serious about his news. And then he's like, I think that's the guy. So then he has this little ruse to go up and like move the trash can and empty the trash to get a better look at him. I'm like, I have totally done that. Like I do that in restaurants all the time where I'm like, like Ken and I, I'll be like, what's going on with that lady over there? And I'll be like, hold on, let me pretend to go to the bar or the bathroom and I'll go see. So I I really felt uh like, I loved this guy. Camaraderie. <laughs> yes. Laura, I got to tell you. This is really Laura Bricker's greatest hits. There were so many people episode. in this documentary that made me, I mean, honestly, Deanna, I was like, Laura Bricker could be her. <laughs> John Green, I'm like, Laura Bricker could be him. Internet cafe guy, I'm like, Laura Bricker. Yep. Lady detective in Canada, Laura Bricker. I just yep. kept thinking, Laura, I knew that the I'm animal everywhere. parts would be hard for you. Luca, uh, Toby. <laughs> I'm not Luke, fucking Luca. Oh, God. So, like, do we think that Luca Magnata is an insane sociopath who planned this whole thing, layers and layers of lies for years? No, he's just misunderstood. Of course he is. Yeah? Is yeah. that what you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really hard to imagine another answer. Toby, what do you think? Well, I guess the question is, is, is he insane or is he scheming? Mm. Mm. Because I think if you were like, 
if your if your description of him was this is a guy who became so uh, entrenched in his favorite movies that he tried to recreate them with real you know human victims that seems like a psychopath right from yeah. like a classic psychopath in a movie it's um, like an 80 it's it's like just like those bad movies in real life right so that to me would would be like on the face of it it just sounds like he's probably deserves some psychological profiling to see if he's he's got it together to to stand trial but that's certainly not the way the people in the documentary feel like it is. As a matter of fact, they use all that stuff as evidence for him being sane. Yeah. It's like, well, he planned all this stuff out, so he must be he must be sane that he he spent two years. And to me it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Is that it's a weird way to spend your time evidence of, of of sanity or 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 not. So I don't I don't have any strong feelings like I don't feel like I have the answer to it, but it just kind of seems strange that they're they're throwing out this kind of seemingly sort of insane stuff as being proof of his sanity. And I was like, uh, I don't know. Well, he clearly has a personality disorder. Yeah, yeah. And I think the question, you know, in Canadian law, I don't know how close it tracks with U.S. law on this, but as far as did he know the consequences of his actions? Mm. You know, was he? Did he know what he was doing was wrong? He knew to wear a wig, was, wear a wig on the plane so he wouldn't be seen. I mean, he did flee. Yeah, he certainly did have a plan, and I mean, all the little stuff. But that insanity is, stuff doesn't probably tr- track anyway, because like yeah. the insanity, like legal definitions, like you have yeah. to know consequences. To, that doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah, it's like there are plenty of insane, you know, psychopaths or whatever that like also know that it's bad. They just don't care. That's not the same thing, right? And he was clearly so smart about it. I mean, that's the thing. If you look at like whether or not it was all premeditated and planned out, just the level of planning that went into um, eluding capture, um, fucking with the people in the Facebook group and messing around with them, doing the fake um, on, you know, all the stuff that he did with all of his websites and creating this whole persona. I mean, he he's he was very smart. And I think that's the part that's hard to sort of reconcile with somebody who would be considered like legally insane. Like, how could he have like the mental wherewithal to plan all of this stuff out if he's insane and not fit to stand trial type thing? Right. All right. So final question before we review this documentary at the end of it. Deanna makes a pretty scathing statement about sort of, you know, herself, people who watch true crime. I'm just going to play a clip of that right now. Did we feed the monster or did we create it? And you, you at home watching a whole fucking documentary about Luca Minata. Are you complicit? Perhaps it's time we turned off the machine. Final thoughts. Laura, what do you think of what Deanna had to say there? Does it ring true or not? Well, there is that. And, that you know, that is definitely with this sort of uptick in true crime documentaries and podcasts and media. You know, on one hand, it's the people who are like, hey, I'm watching it. Uh, like my friend Marilyn, good old Marilyn Markey, by the way, I love Marilyn, my future self, who watches these shows, Dr. Death, as you know, so that she can avoid becoming a victim of a crime. So there is that side. But then there's a side where it's entertainment. And so, it, you know, there is there is um, something to be said for that. What do you think, Toby? At the end, I was kind of just wondering what it, what's the point here, like of the entire documentary? Like, is there some larger point that they're trying to make or they're just like, oh, this is a fucked up story that we, we've got a lot of good interviews and a lot of video and, and we can tell in kind of a suspenseful way? Yeah, I guess. 
uh, <laughs> that were all complicit. If you kind of buy the idea that what he really wanted was notoriety and a way of getting notoriety is to do these really kind of fucked up things and have people find out about them, then yeah, by making this documentary, like you're totally complicit in that. And then as the audience, like you're not going to make a documentary for no audience. Yeah, I guess you're, you're you're somewhat complicit. And then are we complicit reviewing this documentary that they made about that for the other audience? But I think the thing is, they kind of drop that thing in like right at the end. I mean, I, I you know, maybe I'm, I'm being overly like critical of it or whatever, but it seemed like that kind of was dropped out of out of nowhere. But Deanna said it. The documentarians didn't make her say it. She did say it on her own, and they just chose to include it. And I will say the one thing we talk about why was this made, something that I didn't know, because I only knew some things about this case, not others. All that stuff about Manny and the conspiracy theory around him creating all this stuff from movies, that's new. That was not in the investigation. The police didn't know that. It had never kind of come out before. Like The documentarians discovered that through their interviews and through talking to the lawyer, like they actually were able to put that together. So they actually broke Yeah, that's pretty news. wild if, that, if that's the case. It is. Yeah. It is the case. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Kevin, what are your thoughts about what Deanna had to say at the end there? Uh, well, first of all, I think that that was really great that they bring the whole basic instinct thing in those discoveries because it ended up being a very nice surprise for the viewer at the end where you think he's been captured and that's the end of sort of the story. And so to have that other stuff thrown in is good. I think, though, like that, aren't you complicit turning into the camera? I think that's the height of vanity. For Deanna or the filmmakers? For the, the implication is, were it not for the true crime industrial complex, this guy would not be a killer. Mm. It just, that isn't true. It's not the way it works. It just just isn't true. He would have been sick in a different way and done things in a different form. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say, well, you know, maybe he, if there were no YouTube, that he wouldn't do videos. Ted Bundy didn't have the internet. It's like like blaming blaming Al Gore. Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, his first, you know, cat video got a lot of response. And is that the kind of thing that he's been looking for? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously all that attention and all the other things you know, the media interviews and the rumors and my life is... Yeah, he did that first before he did the cat. That was all part of his personality disorder. So to, you know, kind of turn, you know, I'm like, oh, well, that's cute. But I mean, I just, I'm not buying it. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's review the Netflix documentary with the greatest name that's ever been, perhaps, in a Netflix documentary. Don't fuck with cats. Uh, Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this three-part series. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel very conflicted about giving it a thumbs up because I have such a hard time with animal cruelty. So I'm going to go with thumbs sideways just because I don't want to watch anything where cats, dogs, any animals are injured, especially like this. But I will say there are some characters in this that made that were heroes that really, um, you know, Internet sleuths that saved the day along with um, I did kind of like the motorcycle gang people that were fighting for the animals. So there are it, it is an interesting story. I just I had a hard time with the cat angle of it, so I, I think I just as soon would have not watched it. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Don't Fuck With Cats on Netflix? You know, I, I give it a thumbs up. I think it's it's well made. I think it's basically got smart takes on, on everything. I think they do enough showing sort of the, the ways that these sort of amateur uh, investigations can go off the rails to kind of counterbalance the one sort of successful group. 
because again, I, I, you know, I have got real reservations about sort of turning armchair detective sort of into, into heroes in general. But in this case, it, it seems to, for these two people, it seems to be accurate. It's super dark, but I, you know, I, I, I kept watching and a thumbs up. What about you, Kevin? I'm also a thumbs up. Um, I think it's quite the feat that they took a video from YouTube and were able to eventually get to the guy's name and his apartment without doing the thing where, you know, there was a direct line from the IP address to his phone. I mean, to just start piecing it together, that's quite an achievement. I'm like Toby. The armchair detective stuff kind of like I roll my eyes at that. But you got to give it to them. They got the name of the guy, and they basically helped capture a would-be serial killer because he would kill again and again, no doubt, based on what he did in this case. So I think it's a really fascinating real-time look at the development of a serial killer. The name is funny because it does throw off a little bit of what the story is about. Mm. Don't fuck with cats. Rule zero of the internet. Not rule number one, but rule zero. Don't fuck with cats. It's an interesting name. Um, but I just wonder, is this about cats? Yeah. Or is this about a serial killer? Yeah, I'm also a thumbs up. I will say that the the fleeting view of the cat scenes is incredibly difficult. I had to leave the room several times. However, I really am... Um, I don't want to say I'm changing my mind because I also have concerns about armchair amateur detectives. However, having worked in a newsroom where an armchair amateur detective helped solve a decades long case through her diligence and work and responsible use of that information, having gotten to know Billy Jensen a little bit and the way he sort of lays out the rules for if you're interested in doing this amateur sleuthery, here's how to do it right. Here's how to involve authorities. Here's how not to speculate. Hey, nobody flew to Montreal. You Listen, know, I mean, that's but but they did the Google Street Walk, which perfect. is kind of like flying to Montreal. No, it's not. They did some they did some virtual shoe leather, a lot that's of virtual fine. shoe leather. I find this stuff fascinating. I think the characters in this documentary are fascinating. I think Deanna's fascinating. I think John Green is fascinating. I think that, you know, our cops and our, you know, victims, advocates are fascinating. And finally, like this is just on its face. A fascinating true crime story like this is the reason why we like true crime is for stories of surprising people doing surprising things twists and turns and investigations like you take out the cat stuff this thing has everything that someone who loves good true crime would love it has everything it has all of it it has a chase it has everything it has international settings it has everything so I, I really, really liked it. And I was surprised at how much I liked it considering how many times I left the room during the first episode. So big thumbs up for me. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of, of the week. The week. Police in Kansas arrested a man in a stolen car on his way to bail out his brother who was arrested in a stolen car. It's a little bit of an arrestception, Kevin. No one knows what that is. Keith McCracken of Jackson County, Kansas, was arrested driving a pilfered Chevy Trailblazer. He was booked, jailed, and used his phone call to reach out to his brother, Eric. He promised to come to the jail and post bond. But on his way down, Eric was pulled over in a Chevy Silverado that was also stolen. At last report, the two were being held in lieu of bond. 
possibly because no one else in the family wanted to take a chance on going to the jail to spring them. So panel, suppose I told you these two boneheaded brothers had two boneheaded sisters. What kind of unhelpful trouble did they get into on their way to help their brothers out? Um, I'm going to say that they robbed the convenience store down the street on the way to get some bail money. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, what do you think the boneheaded sisters of these boneheaded brothers did and what kind of unhelpful trouble did they get into while doing it? Can I give kind of a downer answer to this? Uh Uh-oh. Please do. (laughs) Well, it just reminded me, and I don't know what the deal with these guys are. Maybe they just like to steal cars. Chevy. They're very Chevy loyal. That's right. Buy American. Steal American. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they used to like that news of the weird that that's that shows up in like these independent papers. Sometimes they would always do these things about these guys who would like go to a court to pay off because they'd failed to register their car. So they go to to pay their fine and then they get arrested leaving the parking lot because they still hadn't registered their car. And the reality is, is that I would assume in almost all those cases, because they're too poor to pay both the fine and register their car. So it's just another way of like both being punitive to people who don't have money and then also kind of making fun of them because they're sort of in this situation where if they don't go and pay their fine, they're going to have a bench warrant or whatever. But the only way they can go and do it is with with their car, which is not registered. So it's just kind of this catch-22. Anyway, that kind of sucked the joy out of that crime of the week. He is a captain of Wilkes. <laughs> it's 2020, baby. But the crime is not being poor. They both stole cars <laughs> and were arrested within hours of each other. I'm just telling so, you about what it reminded me of. Uh, um, okay, so Toby, that being said, what do you think the imaginary boneheaded sisters of these boneheaded brothers did? They picked them up with an unregistered car and got pulled over as they left the parking lot by the cops. Yeah, yeah that's Good what job, I'm talking Toby. about, Toby. Way to land the plane. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? What do you think? And one of them showed up drunk to pick up the other one for getting arrested for drunk driving. That's Yeah, that's a whole different ball of worms. But you're right. <laughs> you're totally right. Jeez. Everyone is right. Laura Bricker, before we end the show this evening, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, we're going with a bunny of the week this week. Yeah, we are. Longtime listener, Sarah. Uh, she has been listening since we uh, since we did Serial. She loves the podcast so much. She's also a private investigator. Doesn't have her full license yet, so she's an apprentice to a local PI. Anyway, this is Albus. He is named because I think he looks like a wizard, and he listens to your pod with me. And there are some pictures of Albus, a very nice little flop-eared gray bunny. And then at the bottom, Albus has had a little too much food, and he has passed out next to his food bowl because he partied too hard. Are we oh. sure it's food that Albus had? I don't know. Maybe, you know, he had something. Should be named Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lara Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you and submit their cats, dogs, bunnies, emus, or other sundry animals to be Cat of the Week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Lara Bricker. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you and talk more about criminal justice issues when we're really just talking about two boneheaded guys who stole cars. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toy Ball NH. By the way, you're totally right about everything you said, Toby. I'm with you on all of it. Thank you. Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and give you a pat on the back, how can they do that? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And before I give my Twitter handle, can I just say a couple of quick announcements? First of all, our listener, Megan, 
had a baby while listening to our podcast. Yay. And I just want to say congratulations, Megan. And I also want to congratulate our internet maven, Meredith Plunkett, on her pregnancy news. She just found out she's having a boy. Great. And as of latest reports, her plan is to name him Flat Toby Plunkett. And congratulations to Allison who conceived a baby while listening to our podcast. What? Please tell me that's not true. <laughs> we know people out there are just loving Toby's voice and yeah. getting it on. He's like Barry White. There's a lubricating nature to Toby's voice. Oh my god. Please stop. And if you want to f- if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On and I encourage you strenuously to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. <gasps> we also have a regular old boring Facebook page by the way. Line editing is done by my future producer Henry Lavoy. We call him Future because he hasn't heard this yet and we're talking to him in the future. See what I mean? There's also future reproducers listening. Our web maven and digital newsletter captain is Meredith Plunkett. Sign up for our newsletter at crimewriterson.com. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you'll get our review of season two episode 17 of In the Dark right now, you'll also get Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and, of course, every other episode of our after show. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we track down internet criminals and no I'm just kidding we don't actually do that on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later I'm sure that I like that the designers who spent like millions of hours creating all those backstories are thrilled to hear I don't care I just love the game I'm just going you really love it best fiends that's the name of the game best fiends all right you guys I just have to interrupt you for a comic interlude Flat yeah. Toby's on a road trip with some the Bob's Country Bunker person I saw on Twitter. That. I saw that. Yeah. He's eating a spicy chicken sandwich, but then somebody said, they're multiplying like gremlins. Do not feed them after midnight. <laughs> <laughs> He's Sorry, going Toby. to the Gator Bowl. It's a phenomenon. Oh, like, Ever right. since we posted those directions of Flat Toby online, it's been like a phenomenon. Showing up yep. everywhere. <laughs> Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.